Well, good morning, friends. Good morning, church. Uh, as always, great to be with you, choir. Thank you guys so much for blessing us in that way. Uh, if you come from a tradition or, or haven't grown up in the church, then uh, singing might be kind of odd to you. And yet, if you think about it, in most, life, in most moments in our life, when we don't have the words to adequately describe what we're going through, what do we typically do? We, we sing a song, don't we? Songs have a way of putting emotion uh, into our lives as well as putting words to what's happening in our lives. And that's why we sing in the Christian faith because we just believe that there are certain songs that can say things better than we could ever say them. There are certain songs that can infuse us with emotion. There's a way of just shouting it out uh, that can only happen through songs. So, hey, also, if you, if you want to be a part of what's going on up here, you can be. Now, for some people like me, that, that invitation is a scary proposition, okay? I would never stand up there and sing out loud. Uh, but if you want to be a part of what's happening up there, then please find Rebecca. We are excited about that choir. They are a great blessing to us. We'd love to see that thing fill up this whole stage. So if you want to make a joyful noise and have Rebecca help you make it sound a little bit better, then, uh, then find her. We'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. Hey, it's my hope, it's my prayer every week that you're with us, that, that no matter where you're coming from, uh, no matter what's happened to you this week, no matter the good or bad, no matter what your story is, no matter how spiritual you've been or you felt this last week, but it's my hope that, that you will be filled with the Spirit of God when you enter this place. That's my sincerest hope for you every time that we're together. One of the ways we're trying to do that is through our current sermon series entitled The Story. We are uh, looking at the Bible through a resource called The Story. What it does is it takes the Scripture and it lays it out for us in chronological order. And it shows us how God's story gives meaning and purpose to every other story that's out there. And that's true for your story as well. My hope is that you will lose yourself in this story because I think you'll ultimately find yourself and you will find your story. If you haven't already, grab your copy of that out in the foyer. We're getting closer to the end of this series, getting closer to the end of the New Testament. But we have several weeks left. So grab that up, read along with us, find your story in and through God's story. I'm excited for chapter 27 this morning. Before I dive into that, though, let's pray together. Ask God to join us in this place. Father, you are an amazing God. There is no God like you in heaven above and earth below. You're holy and beautiful and majestic and powerful and loving and merciful all at the same time, God. And when we look at you and then look at ourselves, it's just, it's just odd how far we fall from that. We are, we are not like you, God. We're small and insignificant and weak, sinful and broken. And yet the promise is, God, that when we look at you, when we spend time with you, we will become like you. When we give ourselves to you, God, you take that which is nothing and turn it into something. And so would you take our lives, God, right now, wherever they might be, however small or insignificant they might feel, and would you breathe eternal life into them, make them more like the life of Jesus, a life that lasts forever. In his name we pray, amen. I once heard about a three-year-old little boy named Mark. Mark's pet lizard died one day, and his grandmother thought it'd be a great teaching moment for him and his older brother, so she decided to have a funeral service for the little lizard. After placing the lizard in a shoebox and then placing the shoebox in the ground, the grandmother asked if the older boy would like to say a prayer, which he agreed to do. Then the grandmother asked little Mark if he would like to sing a song. With tears streaming down his face, little Mark began to shout out, Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more. Be with us for the last couple of weeks in the story, then you know that those who conspired to kill Jesus, they all had one goal in mind and one thing in common. They never wanted Jesus to come back. No more, no more, no more, no more. So for the last 
uh, two weeks, we looked at what happened uh, in order to get him to be dead. And now we're going to study what they did even after the fact that he was dead. See, even after he was dead, they went to great lengths to ensure that he stayed that way. We've been talking about the cross and what happened on the cross and through the cross. But this morning, I'm excited to move beyond the cross and talk about what happened after the cross. Because if what we read this morning actually happened... If what we read this morning is true and accurate and right, if Jesus came back to life after the cross, then that will completely change the way that we see life. It will completely change the way we experience life. Let me show you exactly what I mean. Chapter 26 of the story came to an end with the life of Jesus coming to an end. But if you read 27 at all this week, you know it's nothing close to the end. It's just the beginning. On page 381, this is John 19, if you have your Bibles, we read that on the day in which Jesus was killed, it was a Friday. See, we didn't just make this stuff up. Like in one day, Jesus died. No, it's a historical fact. It was a Friday at 3 o'clock. Now, Fridays in the Jewish culture were known as the day of preparation because it was on Friday that you made all of your preparations for Saturday and Sunday. You see, on Saturday as a Jew, you couldn't do any work. You couldn't do any of your chores. You couldn't wrap up any of your business. You could hardly even leave your house without getting in trouble. So you had to prepare everything on Friday because Saturday was what they call the Sabbath. And the Sabbath didn't start Saturday morning. The Sabbath actually started on sundown Friday night. So at 6 o'clock on Friday night, you had to be done with all of your work, all your business, all your chores. So the timing of everything that happened on the cross, well, it left those who knew and loved Jesus in a very awkward spot. So Jesus died at 3 p.m. on Friday. You with me so far? They had until 6 p.m. then to bury his body, to prepare his body, to do everything they needed to do. Because at 6 p.m. they had to be at home. At 6 p.m. they had to have everything wrapped up. They only had three hours to get done a ton of stuff that needed to get done. Now parents who have multiple kids, who have to get them all out of bed, get them dressed, get them fed, get them off to school, right? You know this feeling. You've got too much to do and not enough time to get it done. That's exactly how the disciples felt. Well, the Bible tells us that a wealthy leader named Joseph of Arimathea, a man who came to know and respect and and love Jesus, well, he asked the Roman authorities if he could remove the body from the cross. See, if he didn't do that, then the Romans probably would have just ditched the cross or the body in the dirt. They would just let the birds kind of eat those bloodied bodies. So even though their hopes and dreams had been torn apart, Joseph and his closest friends did not want the body of Jesus to be torn apart. So Joseph, along with a man named Nicodemus, removes the lifeless body of Christ from the cross, and then he prepares it for burial. Now, this preparation would have been quite involved. The text tells us that Nicodemus is carrying 75 pounds of healing ointment and embalming oil. 75 pounds of hand sanitizer. That's a lot of hand sanitizer. But he's not just going to clean his hands. He's going to clean the entire body of Jesus. And after he's done cleaning the entire bloodied body of Jesus, he's going to wrap the entire body very carefully in strips of white linen. Again, only three hours to do all this. So they remove his body. They start to clean it. And they wrap it up with the white linen. Well, it seems, based upon what we gather from all the Gospels, that these two guys started running out of time, started running out of options. So they do what any guy would do. They just kind of leave it half done and walk away. Ladies, side note here. You can't get too mad at your husband for leaving like a honeydew project half done at the house. This is leaving Jesus' bloody body halfway done, okay? Just be like, honey, it's not as bad as that. But this is what guys do. They were out of time. They couldn't finish it completely, and so they had to leave the body half done. 
So they prepare the body. It's probably 5.45 in the evening. They proceed to place that body in a little cave, a little cave in the side of a hill, something that would have looked like that. Now imagine this moment with me for a second. Go into that cave with me for a second. I've been a pallbearer at several different funerals, but I've never experienced anything quite like this. Can you imagine carrying the lifeless body of the author of life? Can you imagine being there at the end of the one who claimed he was there at the beginning? This would have been unlike anything ever experienced by anyone. See, in this moment in this cave, these men are burying Jesus, but they're also burying their friend. They're burying their Messiah. So they're also burying their hopes and their dreams. They're burying their God. They're almost burying themselves, practically. As I said before, the Jews and the Romans wanted to make sure that Jesus stayed dead. They want to make sure that he stayed inside of that little cave. So we read this in Matthew 27, page 382 of the story. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body. Tell the people that he's been miraculously raised from the dead. This, this last deception will be far worse than the first. We'll take a guard, Pilate then said. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. So it seems as if the Jewish leaders were worried that Jesus' followers were going to kind of stage a resurrection. They were going to fake this whole thing by stealing the body and saying, look, he's not there anymore. He rose from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise God. Don't look back there. So they asked Pilate, the man who sealed Jesus' fate, to now seal his tomb. Pilate agrees. He orders for three things to take place. He orders for a huge stone to be rolled across the entrance of the tomb. It seems as if Pilate wanted Jesus to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. Oh, no, that's good. That is good. Don't give me the booze. It's as good as it gets, actually, today, folks. All right, so. All right, so the stone is rolled across the entrance. Secondly, he orders for two Roman guards to be posted at the entrance of the tomb. And then finally, he orders for a seal to be placed across the tomb. Now, we don't spend much time talking about that one because it doesn't seem all that impressive compared to the other. But it wasn't so much what that seal did as what that seal symbolized, what it stood for. The seal would have been similar to modern-day police tape. Right? You come across something that has that, you know you're not allowed inside of there. You know it's kind of a stay back. So what the, what the uh, Romans would have done is they would have placed a, a cord across the entire large stone. And they would have sealed it or placed it on the rock with hot wax in the middle probably would have been some sort of symbol of Roman authority. And it was basically saying, keep out. You don't belong here. But more than that, it was really Rome's way of saying, we own this. We have authority over this. So if you break the seal, you're breaking the law because you're stealing from Rome. And if you break those things, well, they're going to break your neck. That's just plain and simple. So you follow me so far? After Jesus died, his buddies, his friends, did all they could to prepare his body and his enemies did all they could to protect the body. You with me? Then after the Sabbath was over, after the Jews spent all day Saturday watching college football, uh, we read that on first light, Sunday morning, as soon as the Sabbath is over, first light, as soon as they can leave the house, the women who sacrificially served, the women who faithfully followed Jesus his entire life, these three women, they rush out of the house, they go to finish the job that had been left half done Friday night. The guys weren't able to finish it. So ladies, you know what you do. You go in and you finish it for them, right? So they left Sunday morning, first light, and they go to properly prepare his body. 
Now, as you can imagine, these women are overcome with emotion. They're incredibly saddened by what's happened, but they're probably also incredibly sleep-deprived. So they're not thinking real straight. They're not thinking, how are we going to get past the seal? How are we going to get past the guards? How are we going to get past the stone? Well, they, they're not thinking about all that stuff. They just they want to be with Jesus, and they want to be close to Jesus. And anyone who's ever sat at a graveside or placed flowers at a tombstone or erected a cross on the side of the freeway, you know that feeling, right? You're not thinking straight. You're not thinking logically. You're not thinking about the obstacles you might face. You just want to be next to that person. You just want to connect yourself again to that person. So these three ladies, they go to prepare Jesus' body, but nothing could have prepared them for what happened next. As they approach the cave, an angel appears. It says, through a giant earthquake, the angel rolls the stone away. And the text literally says, and then he was just kind of chilling on top of the stone. Kind of like, <whistles> sitting on that huge stone that was the symbol of, of Rome's authority. We also learned that those Roman guards who had been posted next to the tomb, and they're passed out in fear over in the corner. And that seal, that seal is nowhere to be seen. The angel, probably with a little smirk on his face, he asked the women, oh, who are you looking for? And they pose a great question. And why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Such a great question. But the answer is simple. We're not. We're looking for the dead amongst the dead. This is a tomb. Didn't know if you hear this, uh, angel. Three days ago, Jesus died. We're looking for his dead body inside of that tomb. And the angel proclaims what some consider to be the greatest news ever heard. Top of page 383, the angel says this. Jesus is not here. He has risen. Just as he said he would. Come, come on and check out the place where he was laying. The women peek their heads into the cave and they see that Jesus truly is gone. Then the angel tells the ladies to go quickly and spread the news that Jesus is alive. Well, to make a long story short, the ladies go and tell. And over the next several days and even months, Jesus makes appearances. He shows up again and again and again, alive and well. In fact, alive and better than ever. His body is perfect. It's no longer bloodied and mutilated like it was just three days ago. And his body also is no longer limited to the physical realm. Dude shows up behind locked doors, appears and disappears however he wants. He's not only alive, he's fully alive. And somehow, he's overcome death. So that's the story of the resurrection. I mean, it's one of the greatest stories of all time. I'm sorry that I, I just can't do it adequate justice up here, especially without my projectors on. But what makes this moment? I mean, what makes this moment so momentous? What makes this, this one moment in time the moment that all other moments and, and all the rest of history revolve around? What's so special about the resurrection? I mean, what is it about the resurrection that should change our understanding and experience of reality? Well, for me, it boils down to what the resurrection proves. See, the resurrection proves so many things. I boil it down to three. The resurrection proves that Jesus can be trusted. Think about this with me for a second. Uh, think about all the things that Jesus said while he was on the earth. I mean, he talked about what brought God great delight to what broke his heart, from what it meant to love, from what it meant to, to find and experience abundant life. He said a ton of amazing and incredible and crazy things. But at the top of the list was probably this, this claim he made multiple times that he was going to die, and then three days later, he was going to be alive again. Right? Most, most sane individuals don't talk that way. They don't make those kind of claims. Like, I'm going to be killed. You're not going to see me for a while. Then you're going to see me again alive and better than ever. He used multiple analogies to say this. He said, destroy this temple, 
and in three days I'll build it back up. It says, like Jonah, this Old Testament prophet, was in the belly of a fish for three days, so I will be in the belly of the ground. But then eventually I will come out. See, he said it again and again and again. But let's say, for argument's sake, that three days later, he was still dead. He was like every other dead person we've ever encountered. After he was dead, he stayed that way. Let, let's just say, for argument's sake, that three days later, the temple was in shambles. Let's say that three days later, for argument's sake, the fish had totally digested him. Let's say three days later, he was still dead. Let's say he lied about the resurrection. Well, what does that then do to everything else he said? Does that not cause you to question his other claims? Does it not cause you to second guess all of his other teachings? It does for me. I mean, if, if he lied about coming back to life, then what else did he lie about? If I can't trust him on that one, then what else can I trust him on? Can I trust him on anything? Sure, Jesus, when you were talking about God loving me, man, my heart was coming alive. Jesus, when you were talking about um, serving people and living this radically different way than the Roman dream, when you were talking about that, I was, I was right there with you. Man, I believed all that stuff. My heart came alive. My mind was open. I believed what you said. But if you lied about this one, then I'm not sure I can trust you on all those ones. I loved it when you said it, but if you don't come through on this one, then I'm not sure I can believe you. And any of those other ones. Yeah, God's love, yeah, maybe you were lying about that. God's delight in me, yeah, you're probably lying about that. God's purpose for me, God's plan for me, God's forgiveness of me, you must have been lying about that because you lied about this. You see what that does to his argument? If what he said about the resurrection was not true, then nothing he said could be true. But what if the resurrection did happen? What if he is telling us the truth about this? What if it happened exactly as he said he would? Does it not solidify all of his other claims? Does it not validate everything else he said? Of course it does. In fact, if it's true, then it's the basis, it's the backbone of everything else he said. I know this is true because that is true. See how that works? But if that's not true, then I'm just, just not convinced anything else is. That's why Paul said what he did in 1 Corinthians, if Christ wasn't raised back to life, our preaching is useless and your faith is foolish because you're believing in a liar. You're believing in a guy who made a claim and he couldn't come through on it. But if Jesus was telling us the truth about the resurrection, chances are he's telling us the truth about everything else. That means that what he said about heaven is true. What he said about hell is true. What he said about judgment is true. What he said about grace is true. What he said about God's delight in us, it's true. It's all true if the resurrection is true. See that? So the resurrection proves to me Jesus knew what he was talking about. You can trust what he said. But the resurrection also proves that life comes after death. We all hate to see good things come to an end, don't we? It could be like a, a great football game. It could be a great party. It could be even a great piece of chocolate cake. Right? You just, it's like, no, not the last fight. Please, no. Anybody ever been to Cheesecake Factory? There's one coming to Southwest Plaza. That's like God's gift to Littleton, okay? <laughs> like God has shown his favor to Littleton. Cheesecake Factory is coming. Year of Jubilee, people. <laughs> but we don't want certain good things to ever stop or ever come to an end. And nowhere does that apply more than when it comes to life itself. Right? We all long to have life. Unending, never stopping, always and forever life. There's something deep inside of us that doesn't want us to come to an end. That chocolate, chocolate cake is one thing. But when it comes to an end, it's like, I'll have another. <laughs> But with this life, it's like, what do we do when it comes to an end? 
You see, we cling to life. We try so hard to extend our life. We're uncomfortable with death. We feel cheated by death. We don't ever talk about death because there's something inside of us that just hates the concept and the idea of death. And God made it that way. You long for life. You long for more life. You long for eternal life. You desire and your heart aches to experience life forever because that's God's desire for you. Not just his desire for you. That's his promise to you. See, when it comes to what happens after we die, some people say we just cease to exist. It's all over. Some people say we'll be reincarnated. We get to start over. Some people say we'll be absorbed into the spirit of the universe and we'll just kind of float over everything. But Jesus does away with all the guessing games. He does away with all the speculation. He says, you want to know what happens after your life? This is what happens after your life. Everybody else is guessing. No one else knows what happens except for me. There's another life after this life, and the resurrection proves it. The word credibility applies perfectly here. Think about it. If, if you have questions about how to, how to bust out this Excel spreadsheet, you ask Melanie, our amazing office minister, because she's got the credibility. If you have questions about how to fix anything that's broken, you ask our administrative pastor, Dave, because he's got the credibility. But if you have questions about like what accessories go well with your outfit, you ask Ryan. <laughs> right, our, our, our manly minister of congregational care. He's got the credibility. And he's not even here today, man. That was such a good one. He's not even here. That dog. But where do you go when you have questions about death? Where do you go when, you, when you're wondering what happens after you die? Where do you go with your questions about what happens after you breathe your last? Who has the credibility to help you figure out where you go after you pass away? Who's got the credibility? Who can you talk to? Who has the answers? Well, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus does. In fact, he's the only person in human history who has that credibility because he's the only person in human history to come back from the dead. I said, sure, people have had near-death experiences. Sure, some people have lived forever. Sure, heaven is for real. I get all that. But nobody has been dead, dead, dead. Kind of like the coroner in the munchkin land said, right? She's not only merely dead, but she's totally, completely dead. No one has been dead for three days and then come back to life. No one. No one knows what comes after death. No one knows what comes next. No one knows what it's like on the other side. No one's ever been down that long black train and then taken the other train back. No one's ever done that, except for Jesus. Jesus has. Imagine with me that you're in a cave that's quickly filling up with water. Don't know why you'd be in there, but let's just say that you are. Think tangled here for a second, okay? That scene where the water's coming up and it's about to go over their head. Let's say that you're in that situation. Within the hour, you're not going to be able to breathe. Now imagine there's a guy in there with you who says, I'm going to go look for a way out. Suddenly he just, he dives under the water and is gone for at least 10 minutes. You're kind of panicking. The water's rising higher and higher. Suddenly the guy pops back up. He's a little bit out of breath, but he's super excited. I found an exit. There's a small tunnel underneath us. If we just swim down to it, there's a huge chamber on the other side. We will be safe there. Follow me. Then all of a sudden he plugs his nose and dives back in. Would you follow him? Would you trust him? Would you believe him? Well, I would. I mean, he's proven it to be true. He wouldn't be in front of you right now if it weren't true. 
So Jesus disappears for three days into this cavern of death. He's gone, kind of leaves us alone. We're not sure what to do. But then suddenly he pops back up and he says, this is not the end. This is not how your story comes to an end. Follow me. I found a way out. Would you follow him? Would you trust him? Would you believe him? I would. He's proven it to be true. He wouldn't be standing in front of you if it wasn't true. See, there's life after death, guys. The resurrection proves it. The third thing the resurrection proves is you have nothing to be terrified of. We're all afraid of something, aren't we? It's spiders, heights, public speaking. We all tremble at the prospect of doing or seeing or being touched by something. But it kind of hit me this morning. You know what's behind all of those fears? It's our fear of death. We're afraid the spider's going to bite us and kill us. We're afraid the, the public speaking, like the crowd, is going to hate us and kill us. Wow, that's, that's morbid. Right? We're afraid that on the heights we're going to fall off and, and we're going to die. All those things can be connected to one great fear. It's the fear of death. And we all fear it at one level or another. I mean, we all fear like how it's going to go down for us. We all fear how we're going to die. We all fear that we don't fully live life before we die. And then we all fear like what happens after we die. The fear of death has been this tool, this weapon that Satan has used since the very, very beginning. He loves when you are scared to death of death. What's crazy is we're scared to death of a ton of things. I mean, I was reading this book a couple years ago. It's called Faith in an Era of Fear. And the guy's argument is that every product we buy and every service that we purchase or sign up for, it's all based off of a fear. Fear that I don't look good enough. Fear that I'm going to miss out. Fear that I'm not safe enough. Fear of a bad man doing something bad to me. Fear that I don't have enough insurance coverage. Fear of worst case scenario. We fear everything. So everybody sells you something to help you overcome your fear. Nothing you buy helps you overcome your fear. You know what overcomes your fear? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what will help you overcome your fear. And guess what? It's free. That is why the resurrection, though, is so important, church. The resurrection enables us to forego our fears, to forget about our fears. It empowers us to live these courageous lives, these courageous lives, because the resurrection is the death of all things that we're scared to death of, including death itself. Now, I don't, I'm not saying, like, go and put spiders all over your face, like, stand up here and preach. I mean, yeah, come on. I'm not saying come in the tallest building. I'm not saying that you're going to, like, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm saying with those things, but death itself has been overcome. The great fear that all of the little fears are based off of has been overcome. See, death was always Satan's trump card. He was always kind of like, oh, you lived a great life. You lived a meaningful life. That's wonderful. Now you're dead. Right? And even played it to Satan. I mean, even, even played it on Jesus. Satan played that card to Jesus. Hey, you did wonderful things. You taught us about the kingdom. Yay, hooray. You healed some people. You kicked some of my little you know, henchmen out. Whatever. Wonderful, Jesus. Now you're dead. He played that trump card time and time and time again. But when Jesus comes back to life, he's saying, no, oh, that card doesn't win the game. I got a better card than that. Oh, you got a death card? Listen, I got a life card. And I will play that card on top of every single one of your death card. Sounds like a weird kind of board game, doesn't it? But you, you get the analogy. That's why I love what the early disciples say. This is, this is the Thomas Revised Edition here. But, they, but they're saying to the authorities, they're saying to the naysayers, they're saying to those who want to hurt them, what you going to do? Kill me? I'm not afraid of that because Jesus is greater than that. You take my life from me, go ahead. 
because Jesus will give it right back to me. Ooh, that's bold. That is courageous. How can they stand and say that? Because the resurrection does away with everything you're terrified of. It overcomes and overpowers everything you're terrified of. So you see why the resurrection matters? You see why this moment is so important? The resurrection proves to us Jesus can be trusted on all things. It proves to us there is life after this life. There is life after your death. And it proves to us that nothing you are terrified of should overpower you or consume you or control you any longer. It proves all of that. So it proves all of these things. But is there any proof for it? I mean, sure, you stand up here, preacher man, you're saying it, it proves all these things wonderful, but what proof do you have for it? Can we trust this story? Can we trust that the resurrection really happened? I mean, with so much writing on this moment, like our entire lives, you got any evidence, any confirmation, any proof that Jesus really did this, that this really happened? Reminds me of the story I heard a few years ago about a CNN cameraman. He was out in L.A., and he called the local uh, airfield to see if somebody could take him up in a small plane so we could get some pictures of some wildfires that were just ripping through the hillsides in L.A. Happens all the time. Happens here, too. You guys know this experience. Well, the airfield called him back, and they said, sure, we'd love to help. Park your car outside the gate. There'll be a small plane there waiting for you. So the photographer from CNN did exactly what he was told. He parked his car, saw a small plane, hopped in it. Cameraman introduced himself to the pilot. Pilot introduced himself to the cameraman. After a few minutes of small talk, they take off. They ask him to, or the, the, the cameraman asked the pilot to, to fly a bit closer to the mountains. So he did. Then he asked him to go up high around the smoke plumes, and he did. But then the photographer asked the pilot to go down and get as close to the flames as possible. At this point, the pilot stopped, and he asked why. The photographer said he wanted to show the world what was happening in Southern California. And the pilot stopped and asked why. The photographer said, because as a CNN reporter, this is my job. At which point the pilot said, wait, you're not my flight instructor? <laughs> now, it's a true story. He says to the photographer, this is only my third time up. I don't know how to land this thing. I'll post the rest of the story for you on our Facebook page this week. But this story speaks to, I think, how we need to approach the story of the resurrection. Just because some guy's sitting in a plane claiming he's a pilot doesn't make him that. Just because some guy says Jesus rose from the dead doesn't mean that he did. It's more than just some guy saying it. There is a lot of proof out there for the resurrection. You can trust that Jesus died and rose again. You can have confidence in the fact that although the Romans went to great lengths to keep everybody out of the tomb, they couldn't keep Jesus in it. You can believe that. Some people say, no, you can't. You can't believe that. Some people say the story sounds good, the story looks good, the story makes us feel good, but it's all a lie. My apologies ahead of time here, but snowmen don't talk. Sorry, Olaf. Santa Claus doesn't slide down the chimney. Sorry, kids. There isn't a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Sorry, leprechauns. And dead people don't come back to life. Sorry, Christians. Or do they? See, some people think that hope for the Christian, faith for the Christian, belief for the Christian, is just wishful thinking. It's just blind optimism. It's just clocking your head or, or checking your head and your brain in at the door. Nothing could be further from the truth. Our faith and our trust in the resurrection is based on reality. Our faith and our hope and our trust in the resurrection is based on the evidence that all points to it. 
If you look at a list of the top 100 professors in America, you will be pleasantly surprised to see that a lot of them are actually believers. And I loved this out at Pepperdine when, when a professor who was much smarter than myself proclaimed faith in Jesus. I'm like, if he believes it, then I believe it too. Like, I'm not so dumb. See, you can smart guy over here, Caleb Clanton, believes it. Here's the thing, guys. There are reasons, a ton of reasons, to believe that the resurrection really happened. There are reasons, a ton of reasons, to believe it. It's not some, some wild fairy tale. This is truth. This is fact. This is reality. So let me close this morning with just a few of those things. Now, we could spend hours on this stuff. And I thought, man, since the Broncos are on by this week, let's do this thing. You got nothing better to do. But in all honesty, the evidence, it's astounding. We could talk about the fatal torment that he endured, showing the idiocy of, of the theory that he didn't really die. We could spend time talking about the reasons why no one, including his closest friends, would have thought to steal the body. We could discuss the fact that no one argues the tomb was empty, not even those who hated the fact that it was. We could talk about the fact that Rome desperately wanted and tried to find a body, but they couldn't. We could talk about all about the documented appearances that Jesus made after his resurrection. We could talk about the way in which the resurrection stories are written, making fun of and poking fun at the original writers. I mean, women were not allowed to give testimony at trial in the first century. Ladies, your opinion, your thoughts, what you saw, it didn't matter. So why would you have ladies, if you're creating a new religion, be the first ones to tell you that it's true? I mean, we could go on and on and on about this stuff. The amount of evidence, the amount of proof for the resurrection, it's incredible. Young guys, when you, and girls, sorry, when you go to school, when you go to college, even high school, there are going to be people who say, you believing in the resurrection, it's like you believing in, in, in the hobbit. You believe that, that there's little guys out there in the world with, with hairy feet that live in these little dirt huts. It's, it's like believing in a fairy tale. It's believing in some crazy story. It's not true at all. The resurrection matches reality better than any other story out there. When your professors tell you that you're a fool for believing in Jesus, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in my understanding, I don't mean this like in a cocky, arrogant way in any, in any way, but the burden of proof lies with non-believers, not with Christians. Okay, if he, didn't, if he didn't get up out of the grave, then you explain all the things I just listed off. You give me a better explanation for how all that stuff went down, for why all that stuff is the way that it is. You put the burden of proof back on them. Okay, you don't believe in the resurrection? Great. Then you tell me what did happen. Oh, well, he didn't, he didn't really die. Okay, well, you go through uh, Roman flogging, hanging on a cross for several days. You go through all that, have your side pierced with a spear. You go through all that, then come back and tell me you believe that. Well, his disciples stole his body. Really, you believe that to be true, huh? You believe that they stole his body, a bunch of cowards, a bunch of weaklings, a bunch of guys who didn't even believe in it? You believe they went to all that, all that trouble? Well, you know, this just didn't really happen that way. No, it happened that way. It happened, church. The resurrection is a reality. One of the main reasons I believe in it, and we'll wrap up with this, is it's the transformation that took place after the resurrection. This transformation is unprecedented at an individual, communal, even a global level. It was believed that the apostle Peter, a man who was weak and fake and fickle, a guy who was so wimpy, right? He, he was so afraid. He ran away from Jesus at the cross. This man became the greatest preacher of all time, the most courageous Christian to have ever lived. Right? We know that in his greatest moment, Jesus 
Or, or Peter left Jesus. Peter, Peter ran away from the cross. History tells us that Peter one day was actually crucified on a cross himself. Oh, one day he's running away from the cross, the other day he's running to a cross. And it's believed that he didn't want to be killed like Jesus was, so it's believed that Peter was crucified upside down. I don't even know how that happens, how that works. But what goes from, what makes a man take a man from a coward to a courageous man? What, what does that? A lie? A, a deception? A conspiracy? A rotting dead body in his basement? No. How do you get there? You get there because of the resurrection. We don't have to look to Peter, though, or the early church, or the, the change in the Jewish faith. Just look around, guys. Transformation is still what happens when people come face to face with Jesus. Transformation is the very same thing that happens when the resurrection is embraced as a reality. When you come to know the Lord, when you experience Jesus, your life is changed forever. Why? Because, because you're looking at a bloody corpse? Because you're talking to a lie? Because you, you went down to Peter's basement and saw him hiding out down there? Why are you changed? Why are people, including myself, why are we changed when we experience and encounter Jesus? You know why? Because he's alive. He's alive. Dead guys don't really excite me. I'm sorry, but you're dead. But if you're alive, if you're alive after you were dead, from the drug addict to the down and out, from the prim and proper to the prostitute, nothing and no one has the power to change somebody like the living Jesus Christ. He is alive and well. Just look around, and you'll see evidence and proof of that. I love how chapter 27 ends. It says that he came and he whispered his name to Mary because he wanted to bring her life because he was alive. It says that later on on the road, there's two guys who have lost hope, and it says he comes and reveals himself to them. He wants to bring them life because he is alive. And then to Thomas, the guy that doubted that it even happened, there's no way the resurrection is true. He comes and he proves that it is true. He wanted to bring Thomas life. Why? Because he was alive. He brought all those other people life because he was alive. So this morning, I don't want to just talk about transformation. I want you to witness it. This morning, we're going to conclude our service with a time of baptism. And this couldn't happen at a more perfect, opportune time. See, as Paul says in Romans 6, there is no greater demonstration of the resurrection of Jesus than what's about to happen in this water right here. There is no greater proclamation. There's no greater way to participate in that burial of Jesus, kind of going into the earth, being covered in that water. You participate in that part. But if that were it, that'd kind of be a sad service to attend, wouldn't it? Like, praise God, stay down. But then we raise you back up because you participate not only in his death, you participate in his resurrection. Baptism is the single greatest uh, symbol. Single greatest symbol. What did I just say? Anyway, baptism is awesome, okay? <laughs> baptism is an incredible way for you to proclaim and participate that you believe this is true. You believe Jesus was telling us the truth when he said everything he said. You believe there is life after this life. There is a life after your death, and you believe you don't have to be terrified of anything any longer. You believe that. If you believe that, then you do that. So we've got 10 people this morning that are going to be baptized. Pretty exciting. We're going to witness this transformation firsthand. I'm going to ask the band to, to come up. I'm going to have them play a song for us.
It goes like this. Hit the road, Jack, don't you come back no more. Perfect song for this moment. Actually, it's a horrible song for this moment. They have a better song, but they're going to play this song. We're going to change in the back, and we're going to bring out these 10 folks who want to experience, proclaim, and participate in this life-giving moment, in this transforming moment in the resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, what an amazing story the resurrection is. We, we couldn't make this up. The original hearers, they had no concept of, of one man dying and then coming back to life. It, it would be like us talking about a, a square circle. It wouldn't even make sense. And yet we see you doing it. You came back to life after you were dead. And God, we, we want to see that moment afresh this morning. We want to see it anew. We want to see that when you came back to life, you were proving a bunch of things, God. You were proving that you were telling us the truth about God's love for us. God's plans for us, God's forgiveness of us. God, you were, you were proving to us there is life after this life. There is life after we die. You were proving that, and you were proving, God, that we have nothing to be terrified of any longer. Nothing out there should control us anymore. God, you were proving so many things to us, and the amazing thing is you left so much proof about it. You proved to us, God, that it actually happened from all of the witnesses to the way the story was written to the fact that Rome couldn't find the body, to the transformation that was experienced. God, the resurrection is true. It is real. It's not a fairy tale. It's not farce. It's a true story. And so this morning, God, these 10 people will proclaim their belief in that story. And they will say, I don't want to just believe in the story. I want to jump into the story. I want to be a part of the story. I want to be transformed by the resurrection like Peter was, like the first church was, like the Jews have been. That's what we pray for now in this moment. God, come and breathe this transforming resurrection power into this church, into this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.